the Underdog Podcast from SB Nation and Underdog Dynasty. Welcome to another edition of the Conference USA Underdog Podcast here on UnderdogDynasty.com, SB Nation's home for G5 football. Uh, we just wrapped Conference Championship Week, so have a lot to talk about. Had a great game between UAB and Middle Tennessee that we'll talk about. And it's bowl season. The coaching carousel is continuing to spin wildly, so we'll get into that. Uh, programming note for the last couple weeks, we've had uh, some issues getting the shows to iTunes, so if that's your preferred preferred method of uh, listening to these. Do apologize. Working on getting that fixed uh, very shortly. Hopefully this one will make it up there as well and not just be on the site (laughs) and uh, on my personal SoundCloud, which I'm pretty sure I've just about exhausted my free minutes of anyway. But Anyway, before I ramble too much about whatever nonsense this is, uh, I'm Joe Lonergan, Western Kentucky Conference USA blogger over at UDD.com, joined by Mr. Eric Henry, as always. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing all right, Joe. Cannot complain. Coming off of a uh, busy football weekend, had a chance to cover the uh, American Conference Championship. That was pretty exciting, but uh, good to be back home with the Conference USA, ready to Talk a little, uh, talk a little football. Awesome, and that's that's one thing that we can kind of talk about a little bit now. Watching the American Championship on TV with UCF and Memphis, it was such a weird contrasting atmosphere between what was happening in Orlando in terms of the fan support and the environment that that game created versus what was going on in Murfreesboro. It was like night and day. There was. A very, it was a very disappointing turnout in terms of fans for that Conference USA Championship game. Well, and you know, Joe, I'm, I'm not necessarily going to disagree because obviously it's a conference championship. Middle Tennessee fought back, you know, to, to host that game at home. Mm-hmm. Um, all things considered, you'd like a better presence. But I think that's almost like comparing an apple to a pomegranate in the sense that think about what UCF, uh, what they were coming off of, you know, the really emotional uh, injury to Mackenzie Milton. Um, of course, they have the the 24 at the time, 24-game uh, winning streak that they were heading into. So I think that's a little bit of an unfair comparison, although I don't I don't disagree with you. It's a conference championship, and you'd like to see a better crowd. Um, but what I walked into, and you know, for those of you listening, you may or may not know that I am a graduate of UCF, so I'm familiar with the program. But you know, that was a different atmosphere than than the four years I spent there, just because of the. The seriousness of the injury to Mackenzie Milton. Um, all of the all of the fans were wearing lays. They actually had lays for all of the media members as well on their chairs inside the press box. So that was pretty uh, pretty funny. But I, I just think that's a little bit of a, of a tough comparison because no matter what, that was going to be a huge turnout um, in Orlando Saturday. I mean, sure. It's less a it's less me saying Conference USA should be that type of atmosphere, and me more saying I hope it one day gets to that type of atmosphere. Sure. 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 Okay. Sure. Sure. Yeah, because I I totally understand with how great of a job the University of Central Florida has done in terms of building fan support over the last few years. I I one day hope to see a program in Conference USA do something similar. That's that's really more of the point of what I'm saying, I guess. Of course, of course, and, and as someone who you know covers FIU, uh, I, I won't belabor the point about their fan support. It's a, it, it seems like the fan support at FIU is more or less indicative of what you see around a lot of Conference USA, which is you have a very passionate, vocal fan base, but it's it's not necessarily the biggest. Sure. And, and yeah, you'd like to see that grow. Yeah, and hopefully, if we get more games like what we saw in this Conference USA championship, hopefully we get 
more of that because UAB and Middle Tennessee turned in, I would say, one of the better games of the entire season, really. Uh, the Blazers, of course, pulled that one out 27 to 25, and UAB, just a few years after being shut down completely, rise from the ashes and our Conference USA Championships. I would not be surprised if the party is still raging down in Birmingham as we record this. Once this goes up, they might be petering out a little bit, but never say never, I guess. Anyway, uh, really what I thought was going to happen in this game is if UAB wanted to win, they were going to have to keep Brent Stock still off the field. And um, they struggled with that a little bit at the beginning, but right around uh, the second quarter is when they started being able to do that really well. Uh, Spencer Brown, phenomenal day for him. 156 yards and a touchdown on 31 carries. Uh, Tyler Johnston, 9 of 15, passing for 140 yards with a touchdown and interception. Uh, Johnston also had 56 rushing yards and a rushing touchdown on the day. And I was really impressed with what with how Tyler Johnston played just in terms of he was really playing like his team's lives depended on it, if that makes sense. Um, was running with a lot of heart, um, got the yardage he needed to when they were up against the wall, uh, especially in the first half there. And uh, Brent Stockstill, not a bad day for him. 29 of 45, 362 passing yards, two touchdowns, two interceptions. Uh, but of course, the thing that people are going to be talking about from this game for a while, the play at the very end where UAB is about to punt to give middle a chance to uh, go back ahead with about a minute left and the Blue Raiders get whistled for an illegal substitution, thus giving UAB a first down and the chance to kneel the ball and take the game. So an interesting way for the stock stills to go out. Um, not including the bowl game, of course, but just a fantastic game. And from in terms of the on-the-field product, really could not have asked for a better way to end the Conference USA season, I think. Yeah, Joe, I'm right there with you. It's like you're writing my notes because the first thing I noted is that this one is exactly what you want to see out of your conference championship game. You know, it, this game should be, you know, the, the showcase, the representative sample of your conference, the two best teams. And you never want to have that game end in a blowout. <clears throat> Excuse me, especially if you're if you're a G5. Um, so not going to go ahead and bury the lead here, as you stated. Heartbreaking way to lose the game for Middle Tennessee State. You know, when you have the too many men on the field, uh, gives you maybe the first down and the chance to, as you said, kneel on it and run the clock out. Um, I, I, I saw that you was kind of made fun of a little bit on Monday Night Football with the come on man and whatnot, but things like that happen. I mean, I, I saw. Uh, with FIU, they had a couple of times this year where they had a uniform violation. Uh, we saw uh, a bizarre penalty in, in the FAU game um, in terms of in terms of um, I believe it was twelve. Oh, no, it, it wasn't twelve men on the field. It was they had two number fives on the field. Uh, so I mean, things like that, especially on special teams, are going to happen. And unfortunately, it just happened at the worst time for Middle Tennessee State. You mentioned Tyler Johnson, and, and you kind of talked about the game that he played. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and, and just uh, drive it in here. Uh, he played an A.J. Early type game. You know, mm-hmm. He just made the passes that were there. He did have the one, uh, one interception, but he made the plays that were there that needed to be made and didn't lose it for his team. Like you said, uh, picked up yards on the ground. And uh, as always, who deserves mentioning is Spencer Brown because he had a typical Spencer Brown type game. Uh, back to form, obviously, last week he was only, only able to take the one carry before uh, missing the rest of that contest. But back to form with a 31 carries for 156 yards. That's just a typical Spencer Brown workout, workout workhorse 
<laughs> workhouse, workhorse <laughs> type day for him, uh, getting the job done. And yeah, you know, either way, it was going to be an emotional loss. UAB coming back from the dead uh, as a program. And then you have Middle Tennessee State. It's the last one at home for the Stocksdales together. Um, I love that picture. I'm sure it, you know, you've know you seen it. If you haven't seen that home, you got to find a way to uh, see that picture of Brent Stocksdale and Rick uh, together on the sideline. He's like a seventh grader, and they always compose that. Uh, they compare that to uh, them being on the sidelines together. I love that shot. But um, just a really emotional loss. And if you saw um, Rick Stocksdale postgame, uh, just talking about how much he really wanted it for his kids. And I, I think that's huge to note because – you get a lot of coaches sometimes who you can tell they want to win, but it, it's for their own ego. You know, they, they want to win to say, hey, you know, I did this. Uh, with Rick Stockstill, you can tell he really wanted this one for his kids, and, and it's a tough way to lose. But, hey, give credit to UAB, and they are the Conference USA champions. Yeah, they end the season 10-3 and three before they head to the bowl game here. But you mentioned this the emotion in uh, – the stock still press conference after losing the game in that way. And it was just understandably. So just such a crazy contrast of emotion between, you know, that locker room and then shooting over to UAVs and it's just pure joy, pure elation, giving everything those kids have gone through. So, you know, two sides of the coin there, I guess, but um, yeah, workhouse Spencer Brown and the uh, UAB Blazers getting it done. What a fantastic year for them. <clears throat> Absolutely, and 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 their head coach, you know, talk about another head coach, Bill Clark. He was rightly rewarded uh, post game for his efforts. Yeah, yeah, uh, Bill Con- uh, Bill Clark getting the contract extension as. Uh Eric notes here, new deal running through 2024 will pay him $1.45 million and uh, could go up to $1.65 million. Uh, kind of seems like the natural move here um, just with how he's been able to elevate this program given the adversity that, you know, the Alabama school system, who is now paying him more money, uh, given how he kind of fought through the barriers that they put in his way uh, and how the program did that in general and how he kind of, you know, took these kids and turned them into champions. So I think this is a great move by them. Very well deserved by uh, Mr. Clark. And I can obviously see this working out. And it comes at a great time, too, obviously, when, um, you know, we see G5 coaches trying to make the jump to a bigger and better job, but I think this is going to be enough to kind of keep the Blazers coach from getting poached from a, you know another big program who might be getting rid of their coach every you know pretty soon. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, let me apologize to my co-host. I kind of whiffed and forgot that we had one more game, so I kind of jumped ahead. Uh, just a little, <laughs> a little inadvertent uh, programming note there. But um, no with Bill Clark, here's here's uh, the, my major takeaway. And you kind of touched on it, Joe. You mentioned the uh, Alabama school system. Once again, you know, for, for those of you listening, um, there have been plenty of stories written. Uh, I, I just a quick Google search and get the job done because the amount of time that we have here won't do it justice. Um the short way I can say this is Alabama's king and everyone else falls in second place. Um, so it's the reason that that uh, when Jimbo Fisher was up for the job, uh, the funds weren't necessarily there. The, the, the phrase the funds aren't there isn't new um, regarding the Alabama school system and, and football. Um, that's not UAB. Uh, so all that, all those things considered, Bill Clark really gets the contract extension that he deserves. 
because he stayed with the program when they went dark. Uh, leads the team to a conference title, and now he's the league's highest paid coach. And, and like you said, in this day and age, when you have coaches jumping to the next best thing, both sides really showed loyalty to each other. And I just love it for him personally, because like I said, you know, he stayed with the program when, when you know, he had just taken the job uh, when the program went dark. And he could have easily said, hey, you know, I've got a family to feed, and I'm going to, you know, go to the next best thing. But he stayed with it, and, and he's being rewarded. So great job there. Absolutely. Um, I think this, uh, yeah, this deal still needs to be approved by the University of Alabama System Board of Trustees, but um, I don't really see a reason why this wouldn't get pushed through because I think if there's one thing that we've learned from everything that UAB's accomplished and everything they've gone through, the funds are in fact there. So <laughs> I think they'll be fine. Um, but you mentioned that we have one more game to go to go through, and there's not too much to really say about it. That was Marshall heading to Virginia Tech for the regular season finale. And we both picked Marshall to win this game. Definitely thought they were going to be able to hang with a Hokie team that's struggled for most of the season. And that was not the case, really. Uh, got some points in garbage time to finish up this game 41-20. to <clears throat> And Mr. Brendan Knox certainly deserves a tip of the hat for 27 carries, uh, 204 yards, and two touchdowns. But really, aside from that individual performance, this was not the way we expected Marshall to perform when uh, they really could have had a chance to get their ninth win of the season and, you know, do something that would have put kind of a, a, a little little smirk on, I think, a lot of G5 football spaces as they deny a P5 team bill eligibility. But again, that didn't happen. So uh, Hokies walk away with that one, finish the year six and six, and uh, Marshall wrapping up the regular season eight and four so that's uh that's that game yeah yeah joe but um both of us as you mentioned we both did pick marshall to win that game and for me it was really a disappointing performance because as i mentioned last week on the podcast uh this isn't the virginia tech team of 1999 with michael vick and frank beamer and you know they're not competing for national championships uh they around uh, they allowed ryan willis to look like peyton manning back there and you know He's a guy who, if you follow his career, you know, from the time he was at Kansas, he was pedestrian at best. And this game, actually, statistically, was the best of his career. And it came against a very solid Marshall defense. Mm -hmm. um, in my opinion, Ryan Willis isn't any better than James Morgan. So just a disappointment to see that type of regression. But, you know, you touched on Brendan Knox. Uh, I think the the key takeaway there if you're a Marshall fan is you know you've got a really nice player and that's going to be a great deal coming back next year with he and Tyler King in the backfield along with Isaiah Green so uh, definitely have that to look forward to but the second quarter of the game really got away from the herd and that caused their downfall um, but I'll get a chance to see them as I'll, I'll uh, be covering the Gasparilla Bowl in which they'll be taking on the University of South Florida here in Tampa so uh, I'll get a chance to see just what exactly happened with Marshall and uh, if they can rebound against a uh, pretty solid USF team. Covering the grass Brilla Bowl, that's got to be your least stressful travel day of the year. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that was, uh, compared to the four-hour drive to Miami, it, it, it was definitely my uh, my least stressful game when I covered the uh, USF-UCF. So I'll be more than happy to make the drive up to Raymond James Stadium, which is 3.1 miles away from the doorstep I, I am at right now. <laughs> yeah, so that'll be a fun time. And we'll get to the bowl stuff soon enough. But for right now, let's jump into some coaching news. So with Charlotte, we thought the 49ers had their guy in Mike Houston. Uh, but uh, basically what happened is he said, I will accept the offer, but I want to still interview for other jobs. And Charlotte said, um, 
no, not really how that works, and rescinded the job offer. So since uh, Mike Houston, formerly the James Madison head coach, had quite a bit of success there at the FCS level, will now take over the helm at East Carolina. And Charlotte, I believe, has found their guy, though, right, Eric? Yes, um, I have been checking Twitter right up until we started taping this, and it's Will Lay is going to be the guy. Uh, he is the former head man at Austin Pay. He, uh, or, well, I knew I was going to say it that way. It's Austin P. Dear God. Um, he's former head man at Austin P. He's 33 years old um, from that area. Uh, I believe he's a native of Chattanooga, Tennessee. Um, so, yeah, they, they've got a, a nice young head coach. And the Austin P. program that it really struggled um, prior to this, you know, the year before last, they won eight games. Uh, this year, I believe they went five and six, if my memory serves me correct. But um, nice young uh, head coach, nice uh, young hire in terms of offensive mind. Um, so, yeah, they, they do have their guy. It's interesting. I think with that hire, one of the things a lot of us were kind of – hoping Charlotte would do was hire someone with deep ties to the area to kind of get these local kids excited about football and they go another way not that I don't think this guy is a decent coach because it takes a lot to kind of take a program like like Austin P who kind of had a losing tradition for a while and elevate them to the point where they had an eight win season and they were competitive again but I think that's an interesting choice on their part to go away from the whole hire a local guy and bring the recruiting to the next level thing, which I think a lot of people were hoping they would do. Yeah, I mean, you. I think you hit the nail on the head right there because as someone who I, I thought really would have been a great hire is Pep Hamilton. Um, you know, Will Lay, as I said, is uh, 33 years old. Pep Hamilton is 44, if my memory serves me correctly again on that one. So, you know, sure, I guess you do have a little bit of an age difference there, but still a younger guy and, you know, played at West Charlotte High School. All the fans, when I made the trip to Charlotte to cover the Charlotte FIU game, the feedback that we all got uh, when it was announced that Brad Lambert would be fired is they wanted someone who could re- could recruit the Charlotte area uh, very well. So, you know, uh, they go a different direction. We'll see how it works. Um, I, something I did want to run by you, and, and as far as Mike Houston goes, mm. uh, the only thing I've got is uh, don't hate the player, hate the game. <laughs> Mike Hill and Charlotte got played. There's no two ways about it, and I'm not mad at Mike Houston. You know, that's using leverage in negotiation, and hey, sure. uh, more power to him. But just really quick, Joe, um, I haven't been to Greenville in four years. I went for the UCF ECU game in 2014. Um, Just your quick opinion. Do you think ECU is a better job than Charlotte? Hmm. You know, that's a tough question. I think ECU, given their history and how they were pretty competitive fairly recently, um, you know, on the national level. Um, short answer, yeah. I think the East Carolina job is a little bit better just with the – A, the history. I think there's a little more um, money and maybe a little more, you know, not maybe more fan support. But I think with – it's just differing levels if that makes sense. Charlotte fan sure. support right now is just – nothing but is just so pessimistic and frustrated and just wanting to get to the point where there's some level of success because they've never had it. Whereas thanks to the past success of East Carolina, there's that fan support of wanting to get back and, you know, wanting to return to return to form really. So I think with 
the tradition um, that kind of is rooted in that program and what that means for recruiting along with, um, you know, kind of knowing that landscape a little bit. Um, things like it being a high priority for like Adidas, like East Carolina uh, is, you know, up there in terms of G5s, in terms of getting good stuff. And I, I think in terms of sure. the recruiting draw that it can be, um, I think it's a little bit better of a situation there. And also, you know, I'm not sure what Mike Houston sensibilities are, but, you know, Greenville, Carolina, and just the, the whole coastal part of North and South Carolina in general is gorgeous. So uh, I think if you're looking for that as opposed to, you know, living in a city, not that there's anything wrong with Charlotte specifically, but just living in a city in general, uh, you know, I, w- I would take the beach any day. <laughs> Now, you know, Joe, I think you made an excellent point, something that didn't even cross my mind as someone who grew up in Tampa and lived in, went to grad school in Chicago. Um, Sensibilities and things of that nature are really good points I think you've made there. Um, Charlotte, while it is, you know, it's not quite in Atlanta uh, in terms of uh, a a big city like a metropolis, um, it is still a bigger city than Greenville, so great point. All I was going to say in terms of comparing EC versus Charlotte is maybe I'm biased because I, you know, I'm having some recency bias because I just went to Charlotte. I think if you put, you know, uh, Chris Reynolds, Ben LeMay, Victor Tucker, Rico Arnold together, and and sure, you don't want to think in the short term as a coach, you want to think for the long-term success. But I think that uh, Will Healy, and I was saying Will Will Leahy, I apologize, Will Healy, um, they're going to win seven games at minimum next year because the defense was already in place. Uh, yes, they will lose Juwan Foggy, but they'll still return a lot of talent. Offensively, they just need someone to get something going. So I guess when I look at the – essentially where East Carolina has been since they fired Ruffin McNeil has just been abysmal. And I look at that, in my opinion, Charlotte, when you look at the, the, the facilities and the talent they have, is trending in the right direction. I, I look at them as on par. But as you mentioned as well, um, you know, when I was a student at UCF, uh, ECU was like the biggest rival. It was ECU and Memphis in terms of being neck and neck for um, competing for Conference USA champion, Conference USA for American Athletic Championships uh, when they had you know um, the talent that they had there in terms of Justin Hardy and, and guys like that. So mm-hmm. yeah, I mean maybe in terms of in terms of recent success, uh, ECU does a little more history. Yeah, I remember uh, my freshman year of college, they opened the season against South Carolina. And both of those teams are ranked in the top 25, if I'm not mistaken. So it's, yeah, it yeah, hasn't yeah. been that long, right? <clears throat> um, but yeah, I think just to sum up what I said, I think East Carolina is a slightly better situation right now. Um, we'll see where that new coach is able to elevate that job to in the next couple years because we might not have the same opinion uh, when we're still doing the show, obviously, in four years <laughs> or two years or whatever. Um, but, True. yeah. So we'll see what happens with that. Uh, other coaching news. We've talked a little bit about in the past about Seth Luttrell and the success that he's had at North Texas possibly being something that would attract – P5 job offers and it's you know certainly been a huge topic of conversation in the past but it's looking like he is the front runner for this Kansas State job with Bill Snyder now retiring um but I think from what I understand our own Dakota Gregory 
down in Denton doing a journalism, as they say, and uh, getting some good information that he's not ruling it out, but I don't think he's necessarily leaning towards leaving for Kansas State, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, you know, Dakota does a great job, you know, for Underdog Dynasty and all of us. Uh, as far as covering North Texas, he always does a phenomenal job. But, yeah, um, here's where just, you know, my quick thoughts. I got to put my my biases aside as a fan of uh, G5 football. Um, we'll get into this topic a little bit at the end of the show, but you know, I'm going to bounce something off you at the end here. Um, while I sincerely hope that Seth Littrell stays at, at North Texas, if your aspirations as a head coach are to have a chance to compete at the highest level, and the highest level meaning um, a national championship or the college football playoff, you have to make the jump. UCF is indicative of that. You know that they've won a bazillion straight games, and they don't even have a, a realistic chance of making the playoff. Um, like I said, we'll touch on that in a little bit. Uh, if your aspirations are building a winner and being successful, I think you have to stay. In terms of money, uh, let's look at Lane Kiffin. As a, I'm going to use the FAE job as an example. They came up with some pretty creative ways to fund his contract. So all things considered, unless it's a Texas or an Oklahoma where they just have, you know, like that oil money and they can just, you know, toss $50 million at someone like it's nothing. Um, the money Lane Kiffin earns in Boca is pretty relative, all things considered, to the way they've shaped that contract to what he could get at definitely a Kansas State. You know, Kansas State is necessarily going to break the bank. Um, so that's just kind of my thoughts on Seth Littrell. I mean, Bill Snyder has done a phenomenal job. He's been there. You know, this is his second tour of duty at Kansas State. And Kansas State is a nice job. But even when he was winning the first time, when you and I were, you know, in elementary school, Kansas State was was kind of looked at the at the, you know, kind of looked at as how are they doing this you know um i remember one of the first players that kind of introduced me to college football was a guy named michael bishop um who was a great college quarterback at at kansas state but it was almost looked at as like all right you know they're that team that once every five years could have that nice group of seniors who's been together for four years and go on a run but kansas state isn't a program that's gonna realistically compete for a for a, a national title anytime soon and i don't think they ever will my apologies to wildcat fans you know they're not they're they're what i have gotten into debates with sec fans is they're like the vanderbilt of their conference in the sense that yes they're there because that's their birthright and you know they have that right to compete at a at a power five level but when it comes down to you know all things considered, they're not really going to compete for a national championship. So if it's that's why I make the point about money. If it's a money thing, you know, hey, I'm not gonna. I am a capitalist. Go get your money. Do what you got to do. Um, and if and if you think that you you have a better chance to compete for a national championship, I guess you have to make the move. But if your aspirations are just building a winner and being successful, I think you should stay at North Texas. Uh, what do you get? You're ruining the huge contingency of Kansas State fans that listen to this show, Eric. <laughs> My apologies, Wildcat fans. Uh, I'll, I'll go out and you know buy a bright purple shirt and uh, wear an ugly uniform. What he says. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I do agree with you. Though. I don't know that Kansas State is one of those jobs that's gonna make people you know jump out of their seat. Um, especially when like I don't know, there's just not a there's not a ton of winning tradition there. But it's it's tough to kind of follow up uh, a guy like Bill Snyder who had been there for so long. And, you know, you don't even know necessarily how well you're going to be embraced at a P5 job when you're coming from a North Texas or, you know, any G5 job, really. Um, but I think Seth Luttrell has – he's built a good little spot for, for himself there in Denton. And 
I really don't see any reason why he wouldn't be happy there, aside from obviously a bigger paycheck. But it doesn't seem like, in terms of getting on the field results, I don't think K State would be the best place to go. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I don't know. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, they did that before with now the guy I'm staring at him right in the face, and I cannot remember his name. Um, who took over right after Bill Snyder? Um, I don't want to say the name Ron Prince, and it's not him. Uh, while I'm rambling, I'll try to find the name. But I'm making that point is to say that you know Bill Snyder was really the exception to the rule in terms of uh, getting things done at Kansas State. It's the reason why they named the damn stadium after him, and why they brought him back again when when it didn't work out when he left. And and if it's quality of life thing. Uh, forgive me, you know, I, I guess I'm really not going to, you know, endear myself to Kansas State fans. Uh, why the hell would I want to be in Manhattan, Kansas? So uh, it can't be a quality of life thing. And, and I think there's creative things that UNT can do with the contract uh, to make the things, uh, all, all, all things considered relative. So just my thoughts there as far as uh, the Kansas State job. Sure. And I think the other thing that was sort of attractive to um, Latrell about the North Texas job is the fact that it's a little it's relatively close to his hometown in Oklahoma as uh, our own Dakota Gregory pointed out in his article on UDD that's up right now you should go read it um, and but and Manhattan Kansas is about a hundred miles further than that so I mean if that's really something that's super important to him it doesn't seem like the stars are really aligning here but never say sure. never I guess um, sure. Yeah, and, and just real quick, I just want to clean up that point. It was Ron Prince who was at Kansas State. Okay. Went seven and six, five and seven, and five and seven, and was fired. So it just goes to show you, if you're not Bill Snyder, there's not much success to be had at K State. Not really. No, uh, they called Bill Snyder the Wizard for a reason. I, you know, I'm trying to think if like he looks like he looks like some fantasy character that I can't put my finger on, but. I, I might just he might just look like every old man ever and I don't <laughs> oh well <laughs> someone alright so, uh, yeah the, the Kansas State fans will, will definitely be filling up our emails <laughs> I mean he had a good he had a good body of work at Kansas State we can't really it takes it takes a special kind of guy to coach at a P5 program for as long as he did and he had a he had a winning record he was uh, what was it three he was two yeah it was two ten and one ten so that's not bad, you know what I mean? He was AP Coach of the Year in 1998, uh, won several other Coach of the Year awards along the way. Uh, you can't discount what the guy did at Kansas State. If, if there are any Kansas State fans listening to the show at all, I don't know why I feel the need to defend making fun of Bill Snyder at this point, but whatever. Anyway, um, I think the, uh, the other kind of minor note that we don't have to go too into – right now is we know that Tyson Helton is going to keep on uh, Western Kentucky defensive coordinator Clayton White um, for a few more go-rounds at least, uh, keeping on several position coaches as well, uh, including offensive line coach TJ Woods um, and a few other defensive folks, but I think kind of bringing in some other offensive people to kind of rejuvenate that hilltopper offense that kind of needs a little a little kick in the rear right now if you ask me but i'll make my note really quick on that mm -hmm. if you're western kentucky how many people can you afford to pay uh you can't fire one guy and then say hey you know 
I would think that if you're Western Kentucky and you're bringing someone on, you're going to say, hey, you're going to have to keep a couple of assistants, assistants and, and, and that's that. Oh, for sure. Yeah. No, I, I get the decision for the most part. And I think some of the guys that they're keeping on have, uh, you know, kind of brought done. They've done a fairly good job. Uh, with what they have in terms of the you know the players and the matchups that they've had to go up against this year or the last couple years with the amount of <clears throat> excuse me uh, with just the amount of really good quarterbacks and high quality offensive players that are in this league but uh, you know hopefully this is the start of something good with uh, you know a little bit of new and a little bit of old um, with uh, Western Kentucky football right now um, and then before we get into the uh, both schedule in general, the only Conference USA team, I believe, to not get a bowl invite, even though they were bowl eligible, Southern Miss. So that's uh, that's a thing. You have any opinion on that, Eric? Yeah, as a matter of fact, I do. Um, I forgive me for you know sounding like some you know sixty year old man here when I'm in my mid twenties, but uh, not everyone should go to a bowl game, in my opinion. I know we're at this point where there's so many bowls and you automatically think, boom, you know, six wins means we're going somewhere. But I don't have a huge issue with the Golden Eagles not qualifying because I, I think, you know, we're almost at the point where we're watering down, you know, the schedule and, and just six wins. All right, boom, bowl game. No issue at all that, that they didn't qualify for a bowl game. What has it always been? It hasn't always been six wins for a bowl it, game. Cor- Correct, correct. It hasn't always been six wins. I wish I, I knew the exact reason off the top of my head. I believe, Joe, I believe that it was after the BCS went into effect um, in 98. I see. Because it, it, it affected the way the national champion was, um, was, was awarded. Then that became the qualifier for six. Um, don't hold me to that, but I believe that's the reason why. That was the, the reason why. Gotcha. Um, you know, I think – I know Conference USA only has – so many bull bids um and we so it's kind of natural that someone was going to get left out it happened to utsa last year but you know the only thing i'll say is it while it had to happen to somebody i there's a small part of me that's a little surprised no one wanted southern miss especially one of the smaller bowl games in the southeastern part of the country we give southern miss fans you know, we make fun of them, deservedly so sometimes, for, you know, thinking that there's, you know, certain feelings towards their team when there aren't. But one thing I admire about that fan base is they're very passionate and they love that team. And I think if they had gotten an invite to a bowl that was within a relatively easy travel distance, that bowl game would have made money. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I think that's just a little surprising. I'm not losing sleep over it or anything, but I think it's a little surprising that no one jumped in a bowl game for them, considering the fact that that would have been a good opportunity to sell tickets with how passionate and Southern Miss fans travel relatively well. No, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm staring at the bowl schedule right now, and the only one that I could have conceived, conceivably said that would have been a good fit would have been the New Orleans Bowl. Um, does the New Mexico Bowl? No. The Boca Raton Bowl? Not really. Uh, the Gasparilla Bowl is just a better fit um, with the teams they have in now, specifically USF playing at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though uh, the local paper here speculated that they might not be able to have a good showing at home, but I digress. Um, the Bahamas Bowl? No. And the Hawaii Bowl? No. So it would have had to have been the New Orleans Bowl otherwise, and I think they, they have a much better uh, fit, quite frankly, in Middle Tennessee and Appalachian State. So, Sure. 
Sure. Um, so with that, we'll just dive into the bowl schedule and kind of give our quick thoughts on some of these matchups, and then we will do a, a formal bowl preview show next week. Uh, but the first one, North Texas, Utah State in the New Mexico Bowl on the 15th. Middle Tennessee and Appalachian State that same day in the New Orleans Bowl. Uh, and then on the 18th of December, UAB in Northern Illinois go at it in the Boca Raton Bowl. Uh, Marshall and South Florida in the Gasparilla Bowl, as you mentioned you were going to on the 20th. On the 21st, FIU and Toledo in the Bahamas Bowl. And then wrapping it up with Hawaii and Louisiana Tech in the Hawaii Bowl on December 22nd. So any of those matchups jump out at you for any particular reason, Eric? Yeah, for one, um, the Gasparilla Bowl, and once again, it's just complete bias because, you know, I'm born and raised in Tampa, and it's where I'm, I am now. Mm-hmm. Um, USF, they, they, they better do something in a hurry because, you know, Joe, we're, even though we cover Conference USA, we're fans of college football. Uh, USF started season 7-0. and up. Mm-hmm. Charlie Strong made that point many times in his uh, radio show here in Tampa. Um, they still are sitting on seven wins. So they better do something in a hurry if not to lose all interest in that program here in Tampa. The uh, Bahamas Bowl, I want to see how um, FIU can respond. Obviously, I, I cover FIU. And uh, James Morgan has played against Toledo in his career when he was at Bowling Green. Uh, actually had one of his better games as a, uh, as a Falcon against Toledo. Uh, so interested in that. And uh, definitely want to see how Middle Tennessee can bounce back in the New Orleans Bowl. Okay. Yeah, I think um, I'm interested. I think the best game will end up being North Texas, Utah State. Um, I think I'm, I think North Texas will has a pretty decent shot to win that game, especially with. Do we know if Utah State's coach is gonna? Because he just got hired at Texas Tech, right? I, yeah, and and I haven't. I actually was looking for that pregame, a pregame, pre-show, <laughs> and I and I, uh, <laughs> I I wasn't able to see whether he still will be there or not. I think that'll be an interesting matchup, just because we've seen a lot of good things out of both of those teams so far this year. Uh, obviously, want to see if UAB can correct the mistakes that they made last year when they played a MAC team in a bowl game and kind of laid an egg. Uh, would be nice to see them kind of wrap up the year on a high note. Um, and then I don't know. I I think the Hawaii Bowl will be interesting. Like Hawaii had some really great offensive production in the beginning of this year and then kind of became more inconsistent as the year went on um and you know louisiana tech is kind of a similar story there's some really good offensive talent on that team uh, and then obviously some pretty decent defensive talent too with jalen ferguson but consistency issues were there as well so i think that will be a really interesting game and uh it's a pretty good time slot i think well i take that back it's a good time slot for the west coast <laughs> um probably, yeah for, for the west coast yeah not for not for the east coast that's going to be at 10 30 eastern time on saturday december 22nd but i think some of these games are going to be relatively interesting it's uh we got a, two games against mac opponents uh two against sunbelt opponents one against a mountain west uh, one against two against Mountain West, sorry, and then one against the MAC team. So I think that's or no one against the American team, sorry. Yeah, yeah, you got an American, you got one Sun Belt team, if if I am correct, because we got two against the MAC, and then uh, two against the WAC. Yeah. 
Okay, yeah, no, you're right. Okay. Okay, yeah, you're better at this than I am. Okay, so yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see if, because um, last year, I don't think Conference USA had a very good record in bowl games. I think Mountain West kind of dominated from the, G, from the G5 perspective last bowl season in terms of actually winning games. So I think this is going to be an interesting opportunity for Conference USA, just with the amount of teams that once again qualified and... I think they, there's there's some pretty decent matchups in here. I don't think any of these games are favored by either team is favored by more than uh, by more than nine points, which is interesting. But then again, if you're scheduling a bull game, you're obviously not going to try to put together a game that's going to be a blowout. So I don't know. no, yeah, absolutely. I mean, just looking at him, you know, I'm staring at him right here on my computer, and I think. Uh, I think we have some fairly solid matchups here. Um, you know, like I said, we'll, we'll get into predictions and whatnot next week, but I think we've got some fairly solid matchups. With the playoff discussion happening right now, we just found out that the four teams will uh, be Notre Dame, Alabama, Clemson, and Oklahoma. And even after UCF winning 25 straight games and two conference titles, not really that close to actually being considered for the playoff, which for G5 football fans is, is disappointing. And Eric, this is kind of your topic, so I'll let you have the floor. But um, what is the standard for a G5 to actually be considered for the college football playoff? Because with how well UCF's done and to only get this far, you know, what is it that a G5 even has to do, if anything, to actually get into the college football playoff at this point? Yeah, Joe. So this is one I really wanted to touch on, and I promise I won't take up too much time. But just here is my frustration, and it's not even as you know a graduate at UCF. You know, this is not a. I promise you, for those listening at home, don't you know eyes glaze over. This is not a. Does UCF deserve to be in the playoff debate? Uh, um, that's been played out long before. This is a. What the hell does a G five have to do to get legitimate consideration? Even if you think, <clears throat> excuse me, even if you think that they are not one of the top four teams because every year is going to be different. Um, I'm completely okay with that. But I think that Joe and I will agree here, and obviously I'll leave him the floor to finish up. Um, UCF didn't really get serious consideration. And if you look at the coaches poll, USA Today did publish the coaches poll. Um, the only coaches who voted UCF in the top four uh, were Rick Stockstill, uh, who ironically enough was a former UCF assistant in the 80s, and Troy Calhoun at Air Force. So that just kind of goes to show you when you talk about the people who are voting on this in terms of the playoff committee and whatnot. I think that's a fair uh, representative sample of what they kind of think of of G5 football. And we can get into a debate as far as, you know, uh, the way UCF has chosen to go about it in terms of Danny White uh, being very public. And I was there postgame. He was very public um, about his thoughts, uh, about it being a, a, a not fair system and that a, a better system needs to be devised. But just the standard in general is very frustrating to me because this is what I sent you, you know, uh, when I uh, talked about doing this topic was if you win 25 straight games in a row and two conference titles and you can't get serious consideration for, hey, this team deserves a shot at four. I'm not expecting a G5 to come in number one or number two or number three. Uh, I expect that. And it, it, we can get into a different debate as to whether the playoff needs to be expanded to eight. But I just think that it, what message are you sending to G5 football when you win your conference twice? You win it outright. For In terms of UCF, they won it with their backup quarterback having lost arguably one of the best players in, in school history. 
that and and they've beaten Auburn last year, so they've shown that hey, you put us up there against the quote unquote big boys and we can hang. What more do you expect? And and this is also the last one I want to make. Uh, I did a roundtable uh, for Underdog Dynasty. Uh, did it uh, about last week, and we did a, a topic as far as G five versus P five football in the state of Florida, and how the P fives are really struggling, where the G fives are are doing well. And Jeff Sharon of the Black and Gold Banner Ray, which is uh, SB Nation's UCF site, made a great point, and I'm going to run this one by you as well, Joe. When the scholarship limits were reduced from 100 to 85. Uh, in the early 90s that means that there's now less scholarships available and way more talent you know needed to fill those scholarships Mm -hmm. so in the past 25 years that talent's going to trickle down and have to go elsewhere and that's resulted uh with a myriad of other things and g5 football teams just becoming better so this isn't you know 1985 where like you know northern illinois would win eight games but they're playing you know little sisters of the poor and we just send them to any old bowl game Joe, you know, take kids like Devin Singletary or Daryl Henderson from Memphis. These aren't inferior football players. These are players who, if you put them out there on that stage, can compete. So I just can't see a reasonable argument as to, you know, if you want to make the strength of schedule argument all you want, all right, fine. Then you win 25 straight. But what else, what is the standard for for a G5 to get reasonable consideration? I don't know. Um, So my rant is over. I'll let you uh, close it up. Yeah, I mean, you kind of hit the nail on the head on most of this stuff. I honestly think until we get an expanded, um, until we get an expanded G or expanded playoff where we allow, um, a, you know, like the best G five in like an eight team playoff. I think one of the more popular things is you know all the P five conference champs, the best G five, and then two at larges. Um, I think that's until we get a system like that. I legitimately don't believe we're going to see a G5 team in the playoff. It just with the way that the selection committee seems to, you know, explain away their selection criteria and and all this stuff. I just don't think it's going to happen. It's just as sad as it is to say, it's a really frustrating thing to see with how hard these kids work and you know how well they've done obviously UCF's the prime example of just really running through every roadblock people have put in their way in terms of opponents in terms of like branding and resources and all that it for whatever reason it's just not I, I don't know what they have to do because every argument that you could throw out there of really like why they don't deserve to at least be considered um is just not it's it's doesn't really hold very much weight anymore because we've seen them do everything that really they can possibly do and i i it's sad to say but i don't think we're going to see a g5 team actually make the playoffs in the four team system yeah you know so this is my thoughts and i want to make sure i get this on the record that it's that uh, this is perfectly clear this is not a ucf or even an american thing i, I think most of us would agree that the American probably is kind of sets the standard as far as um, G5 football, as far as having, you know, good teams. But I don't care if it's the Mac, if it's the if it's the Mountain West, if it's the Sun Belt. In my opinion, if uh, South Alabama or Appalachian State won 26 straight games, 25 straight games and two conference titles, they deserve to at least have legitimate consideration to make the college football playoff. And as you said, until we get an expanded format, that's just not going to happen. Yeah, so 
it's a it's a sad state of affairs, but hopefully we'll we'll see some change coming down the pipeline in the next couple of years in order to give these athletes a fair chance. Uh, but with that, we will go ahead and wrap up this week's show. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, go ahead and subscribe to the Underdog Podcast on iTunes if you haven't already. I promise those shows will start showing up on iTunes more frequently now. Um, and follow at Underdog Dynasty on Twitter. Like us on Facebook. Uh, check out UnderdogDynasty.com every day for more G5 football goodness. Uh, you can follow both of us on social media as well. I am at J-O-E-H-I-O underscore. Eric is Eric C. Henry underscore. And uh, come be part of the discussion with us as we get prepped for bowl season and come back next week as we dive into that a little bit more. With that, have a great weekend. Happy football watching, everybody. Thank you.